First Thessalonians chapter 5 this morning. Much of life revolves around our words, is affected by our words, it has to do with what we say, the words that we speak, how we in turn listen to other people's words, how we respond to them. Without words, there is body language, which communicates some things, not complete though. Um, Proverbs describes the the foolish man in Proverbs 17, 28 says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. So there's an instance where body language doesn't tell the full story. Body language indicates that perhaps there's some wisdom here, and then he opens his mouth and he shows that there's not, and he demonstrates foolishness because our words reveal our hearts. Jesus said that. Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we say reveals so much of who we are, what we believe, what we think, how we respond to situations. So this morning, 1 Thessalonians 5 ties into this. We're gonna, I'm going to read the whole section first. Um, we're going to look at verses 14 to 22. We won't quite finish the letter today. We'll do that next week. Um, but let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 to 22. And we urge you, brothers... Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Since the beginning of, of chapter 4, pretty much the last section of 1 Thessalonians, we have seen Paul sort of walk through with this young church some practical issues, just sort of ticking off a list of matters that are going to be everyday life sort of issues and addressing specifically how to please God in these things, how to think like someone who is pleasing God and so striving to please him more. If you'll remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, it began with, you are already walking in a manner that pleases God, now do so more and more, excel still more. Don't be content here. Apply God-pleasing thinking to how you look at sex, how you look at work, how you look at interpersonal relationships, all of these different ways that he deals with throughout 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And then now into this last section, as Jeremy did such a wonderful job last week looking at verses 12 and 13 with you, how to interact with your leaders in the local church, respecting and, and esteeming them. And, and that's really where he's geared now in these last few verses is life in the local church, how we interact with one another. This last part of 1 Thessalonians 5 in particular is, I think more than anything, how we interact with our words, how we speak to one another, how we speak to God, and what we do with the words that we hear as we listen to God's word to us. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 to 22 teaches us to please God by the words we speak to each other, the words that we speak to God, and the way in which we listen to and respond to God's word to us. So let's start with the talking to one another part, probably the more challenging part of, of all of this, our, our words to one another, and that's verses 14 and 15. And he says again, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 
Ancient writers understood what the Bible teaches from way back, and that is that words are powerful. What we say has the capacity to heal and has the capacity to harm. And so even amongst ancient philosophers who were contemporaries of Paul in the first century, there was this use of the medical metaphor to describe the power of words to heal and to hurt. Seneca, who was one of those philosophers, urged teachers to heal human nature by the use of words. It was that belief that you can say things that will help people and, and strengthen people. We need only spend time in the book of Proverbs to see that over and over again. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18, there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Very picturesque description of attacking people and hurting them with words or providing healing for them. Also in chapter 12, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. That ability to speak something into his life that, that helps him address the, the anxious feeling that he has. In chapter 15, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it, perverseness in speech, breaks the spirit. And finally, chapter 16, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Wonderful picture of the power of words to provide healing, and also to be used to provide harm. Our words deeply affect the people who hear them. Your words are powerful. They, they have that capacity to both wound and to promote strength. And I think to some degree that is the essence here of verses 14 and 15. It is a reminder to not only choose our words carefully, to think about what we say, but to think about the person who's receiving them, to think about the needs of the person to whom we are speaking. And so he's, he's even described for us here some different categories of people to get us to think that it's not just, it's not just whatever I feel like saying at the moment and just blurt it out, but, but can I be helpful and how can I minister to this person in this moment? What, what might they need? What would be helpful to them? The high bar that he sets at the end of verse 15, I'm going there first, then we'll go back to 14, but the end of 15, he says, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It's a strong statement. It is God saying, this is, this is my design for your words, that your words seek to help others, that they seek the best for the other person. Paul will say something similar in Ephesians about helpful words, words that are helpful for building one another up. Our words should benefit the hearer. That's the idea of that Greek word for good. It's, it's for their profit. It is, is to help them in some way. The beauty of verse 14 when it speaks about admonishing one, encouraging another, helping another, is what it tells us is it's, it's not just one size fits all sort of speech. In other words, good words, beneficial words, aren't limited to those that are complimentary and gentle. You know, it's only when I'm saying really nice, sweet things to you that, that that's the way I'm supposed to speak. But he also reminds us there's more to it than that. Beneficiary, beneficial words to someone may be words of admonishment. They may be strong words. But the main point is, are we seeking to help that person or are we just venting for the sake of saying what we want to say and what we, we want out at that moment? Are we seeking their profit? And of course, he says in verse 14, the one, the one thing that governs all of this, there's varied ways of speaking to people, but the one thing that governs all of this is verse 14 ends with, be patient with them all. Of course we're to be patient. 
we are to be imitators of the God who saved us, right? And the God who saved us is incredibly patient. We see that over and over again. If God has saved you, you understand the patience of God. If you look at your life before you came to faith in Christ and you see that God has saved you, you understand what patience is. That God wooed you and called you to himself. That he, he loved you. That he called you to repentance. He showed you the beauty of the gospel. And in patience, he called you to be one of his own. Romans 2.4 warns against presuming on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. His patience is one of these rich things of God that we are called to imitate. At the rebellion of Adam and Eve at the beginning, God's patience could have justly ended. God could have stopped this mankind creation thing when man first rebelled and said, that's it, don't need it, done. And instead, what God does is he he continues to demonstrate patience. He judges sin, and he puts forth what the condemnation for sin is, but then he, he lovingly calls to repentance and to grace those who will come to him. And so believers in Jesus Christ are called to be uniquely patient. It's one of those character qualities that the, it's called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. In other words, it's one of those things that doesn't come to us by nature. It must come by the work of God in us, shaping us to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And, and Galatians 5 says that's what God is doing. He's, he's engendering patience into us and teaching us to be a patient people. Remember again the Thessalonian situation. I mean, these are folks who are facing hostility. These are people who are in pain, who are in difficult circumstances. There is no better time to test our impatience than when we are in pain, when somebody is coming at us, and, and what do we want? We want it to stop. We want this to end. We want to, if need be, say something angrily back to shut them up so we can, we can just stop it. And patience isn't a strong suit then, is it? And yet here is Paul urging the Thessalonians in the middle of persecution to not repay evil for evil, to, to not go back and do what, what the flesh would, would urge them to do at that moment and strike back in anger, but rather to look and see what would be good for them. What can I say at this point? It doesn't mean that they should say, oh, this is great. I'm enjoying being persecuted. But the thing the persecutors may need to hear is about how they are trusting in Christ in the middle of their suffering, how great their God is, how firm they continue to stand on him. But it is, it is saying that which is helpful, which is good for those who are hearing. Verse 14 then goes in and sort of teaches us this variety of, of approaches. As I've said to you before, I think First Thessalonians is just a wonderful book on discipleship because it, it just addresses how we ought to come alongside one another and it gives these varied approaches. And verse 14 starts with, we urge you, brothers. Same way verse 12 said, we ask you, brothers. It's important that we see this. He's just gotten done in 12 and 13 talking about leaders and elders, and now he's going to talk about hard sort of ministry stuff, admonishing, encouraging, helping. And he's not saying this is the work of the elders, the leaders. He's saying this is the work of the body. You, as brothers and sisters in Christ, this urging is for all of you to seek to speak this way. And so the first group he describes here in verse 14, we, uh, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. It says in uh, English Standard, I think New American Standard is probably more accurate when it says unruly. Admonish the unruly. 
Idleness makes it sound like it's, it's strictly aimed at, you know, somebody who's being lazy, admonish the person who's being lazy. That's part of it. That's part of unruliness, but the word is broader. Um, the Greek word tasso is to put things in order. This is the negation of that. This is the opposite of that. So it is somebody who takes things out of order, who does things in a disorderly way, who is unruly, who understands this is this is what God has called you to do. This is what you should do. This is your responsibility. And they seek to do something that is different. They act in an unruly way. In the life of the church, we're talking here about someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, but who persists in defying God's truth, who is taught what they are supposed to do, who, who sees God's will, but who continues to deny that and to disobey that and to live in a disorderly way. And so the calling for brothers and sisters in Christ is to admonish that person. It's like the child who is given the rules and the boundaries. This is, this is what you need to do. This is where you need to be. And they just will do anything to get around those rules, anything to sneak around those boundaries. You, you know that, you know that kid who just doesn't matter what the rule is, there's got to be a way to work around that. It's like the, 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 the little one who you say to them, don't touch that. And they stand there across the room from you and, and put the hand up to touch it just to see what you're going to do. That's what the idea of unruly is. That's the picture that he's giving us here. And we know what we have to do in those situations. We don't go, oh, isn't that cute, and, and let them do that. We admonish at that point. The idea of nutheteo in the Greek is warn, correct. It is out of a belief that if that child continues to defy rules and boundaries and be disorderly, that child will head toward his or her own destruction. If allowed to just repeatedly say, I don't need rules, I don't need boundaries, I can do what I want, we know what will happen to that child. It will ruin that child. And so the same is true here. That's what he's calling us to here when we see a brother or sister in Christ who is being unruly, who is persistently defying the will of God. We understand that to, to, to just look the other way at that is, is like ignoring that child and saying, oh, that's okay. It's not okay. Because we understand that a person who professes faith in Christ and who persists in, in defying the word of God at some point is moving toward their own destruction. And, and so the call is to admonish, to speak up, to provide some biblical correction and teaching to do so patiently, because he's already given us. Be patient with all. It's for their good. We're not trying to get even with them in some way, but we're not afraid to also say, hey, this is, this is not right. This is not where you should be. So admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Some, some may act out of a sense of rebellion. Others are just caught in discouragement and, and, and fear. They lack faith. Their circumstances seem overwhelming. They're afraid. They're afraid of what other people think. They, they worry about how they look to others. That's the idea of this person who is faint-hearted. Small-souled is the idea in the Greek, but it's just it's somebody who's anxious about circumstances and people and, and starting to struggle with God's promises. And, and, and where is he in this? Clearly, there were believers in Thessalonica who were facing rejection in, in a severe, broad way for, for the first time. This was a new experience now of suddenly being the outcast, of suddenly being the one who was hated. And it had to be heartbreaking and distressing. And verse 14 is telling us some of them needed encouragement. 
Some of them just need it to hear truth, to remember, God is here. God, God knows. God is in control. This, this is not the, the typical Greek word. We've talked about it before, that word for encouragement, where it means to come alongside, to, to call one to one side. This one is more the idea of speaking alongside someone. This one is, is very focused on the words that we use for encouragement, the things that we say. And we know that as believers in Jesus Christ, genuine encouragement must be grounded in God's truth. It, it's got to rely on God's word. Because if all I say to you in a, in a painful circumstance is, just hang in there, everything will be fine. We say that sometimes casually, but then we're, we're not God. I don't, I don't have sovereign control. I can't say to you, hang in there, everything will be fine. I don't know that. But I, I, I do know the God of, of this word, and I can with certainty tell you that he is with you in this, that he will not leave you or forsake you, that he promises that he will work all things together for good for them that love him and are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean that the circumstances will immediately change or be removed, but that God is faithful in this. He can be trusted in this. His promises to you are still good. And so as anxious as you feel, trust in him. Those who are discouraged, it, it might be as simple as just reminding them of the promises of God and letting them know, I'm, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying that you'll, you'll believe these things and know these things, and I'm going I'm to just speak them into your life just to encourage you that God is very present with you in this. He's kind, and he is just. He cares for you. He restores the broken. All of the the descriptions of, of what God does throughout the Psalms, being present with his people and healing the brokenhearted. All of those kind of things are things we can speak to those who are struggling and who are faint-hearted. So trust him and believe his promises. Encourage the faint-hearted. Third is help the weak. A verb for help is grasp. It is to take hold of something. This is, this is beyond the verbal. It is verbal, but it's more than that. It is, it is physical presence. Um, so it is the idea of, of, of the person who is without strength taking hold of them and being with them and speaking closely to them and being a source of strength, God's strength being ministered through you to them. This is the person who, who feels like they have nothing left and they are out of strength and, and they can barely look at the day ahead, much less beyond that, and they can't possibly imagine things ever getting better. And they are just feeling just so utterly defeated at this point. And, and this is a call to be the body of Christ, to be physically present with the one who, is, who feels desperate, who needs someone to lean on, to be speaking those words to the person who feels battered and, and, and talking to them about who God is. To use the words of one commentator, we're, we're called to put our arms around the weak and hold them up. They are, quote, they, quote, need to be assured that they are not forgotten or despised because of their helplessness. Ever been there as a believer in Jesus Christ where you are walking through a valley and you are feeling like the weak? And on top of that, the, the thing Satan wants you to feel most like is that, that you're so weak that you really can't call because then you'll look immature as a believer. You'll look foolish as a believer. And so you just sort of sit alone in this place because you're unwilling to, to even seek help at that point because pride says, ah, you should be a stronger believer than this. You shouldn't be here. Well, the, the fact is Paul is saying, God's word is saying, 
we're going to experience seasons like this, and we need other believers to come along and help to take hold and step alongside and minister to us and speak to us and care for us. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. The, the theme again, always do good to one another and to everyone. That, that's our calling, is to use our words with one another in a way that profit. So then verses 16 to 18, now it changes direction. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So we've seen how to please God with our words to one another. Here it's how we speak now to God. Three more imperatives. For a book that doesn't have a whole lot of imperatives and commands, Paul just stacks them here at the end of the letter. It's just boom, boom, boom. Listen, we're wrapping up the letter, and we're going to get out everything that you need to remember here. This is what it looks like to live a life that pleases God. These are things I just want to plant in your brain, essentially, he's saying. And so he goes through these these three imperatives and says, and, and, and ends them there at the end of verse 18 with, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Just in case you think this is just me sort of giving you commands, I want you to know, those of you who are in Christ Jesus, you are believers, this is the will of God for you. This is what he has called you to. So let's talk first about the always nature of these these three things. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. All three are present tense verbs. That means ongoing, continuous, do these things on a regular basis. In all three instances, in the Greek, the adverb is first. may not sound like an important point to you, but in Greek, you put the word first to underline it. That's the way. You don't have punctuation. You don't have exclamation points. You, You do use word order. And so it actually goes, always rejoice, unceasingly pray, in all give thanks. And so he is stressing the continuous nature of this. If you're like me, when you read this, part of you goes, well, come on now. I mean, that's virtually impossible. I mean, physically, psychologically, we can't, we can't do this 24-7. We can't maintain this posture. There's sleep. There's driving. I need to focus on my driving. There's caring for kids. I've got to focus on them. A lot of you have military experience. You understand there are situations you are in when your mind has to be entirely engaged on what's in front of you because it's life and death. Not, not just for you, but others are involved. And so you, you understand that psychologically, what, it's not saying that this has to be every single moving second has to be in this direction. The point is this. For the believer in Jesus Christ, there are no seasons when we are excused from expressing God-given joy or excused from calling out to God in prayer or excused from being thankful to him in the midst of that. You see that? It... it, it Your circumstances are not worse than everyone else's so that you can say, I'm not praying right now. I can't. I I have no joy left. I have no gratitude. My circumstances are so bad. Your circumstances are never so bad that God gives you a pass and says, "Eh, it's okay if you're sullen and ungrateful and don't feel like praying. That, that's what he's speaking to here in that what he's saying is, the point is, even to a young group of believers who are still growing in their faith, who are new to the gospel in many senses and are facing actual suffering and persecution, what he's saying to them is, listen, whatever circumstance comes, you still have joy within. No matter what happens, God is still at work in you with this expressible joy that you are able to put forth back to him. No matter what circumstance you are in, 
you should pray. If you're in need of wisdom, you should cry out to God. There is no circumstance in which you can say, well, I'm not praying in this one. This is beyond God. This is beyond his aunt. No. God in his providence says, in every circumstance, pray. There is no circumstance in which you should not be thankful. Because no matter what you face, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you always have the knowledge that God delivered you from the condemnation you deserve and from his eternal wrath and saved you by putting that all on his son and crucifying his son and now giving to you eternal life and redemption. There is no circumstance in which we can be ungrateful if we are grasping these sorts of truths as to who we are in Christ. What could possibly warrant ingratitude in light of God's grace and the fact that he has delivered us from the punishment we deserve for our rebellion? Yes, we, we may feel frustrated at times. Circumstances may not be great. We may not be thankful for the particular circumstance, but in those circumstances, we can still have hearts of gratitude toward God. I, I am encouraged repeatedly. This happened again this morning before services, just talking to individuals who were going through physical affliction, who going through struggles, and, and to a person, the, the response I get when I'm talking to people is... They, they describe what's going on, and maybe it's getting better, maybe it's getting worse, but the response is always, but you know what? God is still good. I, I, I'm, I'm still able to, to find joy in him. I, I, that is such an encouragement when you hear from believers who are, who are in the midst of it and who are still saying, you know what? But God is, God's with me in this. I'm still encouraged by his presence. Whatever circumstances come, they should be seasoned with joy and gratitude and earnest Please, for God's help and wisdom. We believe in a Savior who infuses joy into our lives, who urges us to pray with the promise that he answers prayer, that if we, if we don't ask, don't expect to receive. And so he calls us to prayer and who is providentially kind in all of our circumstances and therefore we should be thankful in all of them. Therefore, we are able to rejoice and pray and give thanks. Verse 19. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So the first two sections, it's largely us speaking. Me speaking to you, you speaking to me. And that second section, how I speak to God, how I praise and thank him, how I pray to him and ask for help. This last one is more of how I listen to God, how I listen to and respond as God speaks to me. Now, the key word in this passage that is not without some controversy in Christian circles is the word prophecies. He says in verse 20, do not despise prophecies. Depending on theological schools, you'll see different definitions for exactly what prophecy looks like. We see it frequently in the Old Testament. The prophet says, this is what the Lord will do, and he promises that God will do this, and the test of a true prophet is what he says will come true. It will happen, and so it's often in terms of future prediction, and some of that as well in the New Testament. There's prophetic things in the New Testament that look forward. Some have argued that this meaning of prophecies in the New Testament is the idea of a spontaneous thought that God brings to mind. There's an element, clearly, in which Jesus had said in John 14, listen, one of the works of the Holy Spirit is he will bring my words to mind for you. He will bring conviction and righteousness and judgment, but he will do that 
we believe primarily through his word, bringing to his truth to mind in you. And so there's that. One theologian has written, a respected theologian has written a 350-page book just on the gift of prophecy. So all that says to you, you will not get the exhaustive look at, at prophecies here this morning. I'm going to do the best I can within the context just to address this. Um, but I, you may go away and still have some questions, but hopefully we'll get this passage better. It's clear from 1 Corinthians 14 that there is a gift of prophecy. There is something that the Holy Spirit does, a spirit-given capacity that is a, a speaking gift that is designed to build up other believers. 1 Corinthians 14.3 speaks of the one who prophesies, speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. What's also clear from Scripture is that those who are routinely identified as prophets are messengers of God. They speak as mouthpieces of God. When, when they are speaking, they are speaking forth God's truth. When they are speaking forth the, the, the word, I shouldn't say not speaking in the sense of everything they say, but when they are authoritatively declaring, thus saith the Lord, they are speaking as his messengers. Prophets delivered God's truth. So the key for us, though, I think to remember is that when the prophets were speaking forth God's truth, both in times of the Old Testament and the New Testament, including at this period when in the first century Thessalonians was being written, when the church was young and, and these letters were being written, these all came at a time when they did not, believers did not have a complete copy of this. They did not have the 66 books of the Word of God. They did not have the complete canon of the Old Testament and the New Testament. What they had in some cases was the, the scrolls of the Old Testament, and then they had Traveling prophets like Paul, apostles, and others who came and spoke to them and said, here is the word of the Lord. You and I have scripture. You and I have the Bible. And in fact, if you go to the end, to the book of Revelation, to chapter 22, to the book that looks the furthest into eternity, to the coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of God's kingdom, Revelation 22, as it's approaching its end, says, do not add to or take away from this book of prophecy. Essentially, that, that sort of puts a caveat on all of this and says, don't, don't try to come up with something new about what God's going to do once you go beyond this. If you're going to go outside of Scripture, you're running into risky ground because here is God's prophecy. Don't add to or take away from this. And so we've articulated this, and, and it is not on the level of Scripture. It is a confession of faith, so it is just our interpretation of this. We have put in our confession of faith that we believe that the Bible is God's revelation for all that needs to be known about God, man, and salvation, and then talking about the gift of prophecy and other speaking sort of gifts, further revelation, including in the form of prophecy, is unnecessary in the church today and would tend to undermine the sufficiency of Scripture and would promote instability, heresy, and division. Essentially saying, we have God's truth here. And so if, if I am going to say to you, God says, I have every reason to quote to you from here and say God says because God said it right here. If I say to you God says and it runs contrary to here, you have every reason to say, whoa, <laughs> that, that concerns me because God has spoken here. So that doesn't mean we're without a lesson here in this passage. True prophecy is the speaking forth of God's truth, which we have in Scripture. And in fact, Peter, in, in, in 2 Peter, refers to the, the Bible as 
completed prophecy. In 2 Peter 1.19, he says, and he's talking about the Bible in 2 Peter 1.19. He's talking about the scriptures, if you look at the whole passage. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. There's Peter saying, we have this, this scripture. Pay attention to it. This is God's prophetic word to you. Now, as to what was the circumstances in Thessalonica, we don't know. We, we don't know what provoked Paul to write this other than obviously the leading of the Spirit in the writing of this. But apparently there was, in some way or another, something in the congregation at Thessalonica that wasn't obeying God's word. Somehow God's truth was being spoken and, and some in, were rejecting it. Either it was because they didn't want to hear the rule, just like we do sometimes with God's word, and we go, no, it doesn't really mean that, does it? Because then that means I'd have to change my life. Um, there could have been some of that, or it, it, frankly, it, some of it could have just been dealing with the faint-hearted and the weak who are saying, I don't know if I can believe God's promises. I'm losing everything here. How, how am I supposed to believe that God is, is still good? And so some of it may be just, the, the, frankly, the assurances of his prophecies. There could have been 1 Corinthians. We see in 1 Corinthians there's jealousy and rivalry over spiritual gifts. Could have been a little bit of that in play where I'm not listening to you because I don't think you're a prophet and, and, and that sort of stuff that's going on. All of that to say we don't really know for sure. But the reality is we know this. There are times for us today in local churches, when people who profess to believe in Jesus Christ simply do not want to hear what God's word says. And if they hear it, they struggle to believe it. And if they believe it, sometimes they struggle to obey it. It's clear. It is given by God's spirit in his word. And yet there is that, that struggle. That, that's thus why verse 14, admonish the unruly. Because there are those times in local ministry when when people just say, I, I don't want to, I'm sorry, but I can't do that. Because they are rejecting what God's word has said. Sometimes that admonishing leads to repentance and grace. Unfortunately, there are also those who will simply put their fingers in their ears and say, I, I don't want to hear anymore. I, Paul warns about that to Timothy in his letter to Timothy, that there will come a time when they will turn away. They will not want to listen to the preaching of the word of God. In, in that passage where he says, preach the word. Even in the days coming will they, when they will turn away from listening, you continue to proclaim God's word. And so the heart of what Paul is urging us here to is listen to God's word. Listen to what God has already revealed. Listen to what his spirit uses to minister to us. Listen to it and respond. Read God's word and then respond to it. To the, the readers in Paul's day, to the Thessalonians, there's, there's two ways to take this, test, test it and see if it's good. The, the first way is somebody comes who claims to be a prophet, you're going to listen to what he says and you're going to compare what you know to be the word of God from what you've been taught before. And, and like the Bereans do in the book of Acts, they examined what was taught to them. They thought about it and looked at it compared to what they knew from what had been revealed about God in the Old Testament, what they knew already from the life of Christ. And so there's that aspect of listening discerningly to what's put forth as prophecy and making sure it's consistent with what they knew to be true. We have that consistent, reliable guide, right? We have it in God's word, and so we have that sufficient guide. God's revelation is here. And so we test in the sense that God's word now teaches us 
how he distinguishes between good and evil. And so when he says here to test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil, I think by way of application for us, God's word delivered to us, his prophetic word made more sure, is the guide by which we test life, by which I begin to answer the questions of, is, is this something I should do? Is this good? Is this wise for what I should do? Does God's word speak to this? Are there biblical principles that guide me in this as to what I should say and how I should respond and whether I should enter into this relationship or do this, this, or that? Does God's word speak to that? Do I have wisdom and principles that guide me? The Bible is a sufficient guide, and so what it's calling us to do then is be diligent listeners and good responders because we have everything in here pertaining to life and godliness. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3. He's not left us without clear revelation. We have everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. Where do we get the knowledge of him who called us? We get it from his word where he has revealed himself. And so I, I, can, I can live a life that is pleasing to God by meditating on what I know about God from his word. So you and I have a book that from beginning to end is filled with thus saith the Lord. He speaks to us. And so to ignore it, reject it, minimize it, rationalize it, or reinterpret it so that we can call evil good, which is what our culture does all the time. Oh, it's, it's the 2000s, and so what that meant then doesn't mean that anymore, and now it's good. Now this, is, oh, this sinful behavior is no longer, and now it's okay. Listen, when we start to do that, we are quenching the work of the Spirit of God and despising God's truth. That's what he's describing here. It, it is taking what is clearly revealed from God and saying, now... No, no, I want it to mean this instead. Well, that's, that's me now as God. We should be eager to see what God calls good and to hold fast to it and to also know what God calls evil and to turn from it, to abstain from it. it means to go the other way from it, to get away from it. So here's, here's the gist of it. If you didn't hear anything else and your mind was elsewhere this morning, you were focusing. Maybe you were just involved in prayer and thanksgiving, and you weren't able to focus on all this. If you missed everything else, then, then here's what I would leave with you this morning. Listen to God's word. Receive, read God's word. As believers in Jesus Christ, we should have a Psalm 119-like love for God's word, where the psalmist is, is just saying, I am hungry for your word. I, I want your word. I want to feed on your word. I want to know your word. I want to obey your word. That's what we're called to as believers, is to love God's word, to see what God's word said is good and love that see what he says is evil, and abstain from that and go the other direction, and then to take God's word, and as it fills us, allow it to fill our speech, so that as we talk to others, we are giving them what is good for them, what is profitable for them, because we are speaking back what God has taught us in his truth. And having listened to God's word, then what should come forth is the joy in what he's done, it is the call to, to pray because we are a needy people, and it is the call to gratitude and to give him thanks for who he is. You can pray with me, would you? Father, we come before you thankful that you have revealed yourself in your word to your people. We are not left clueless, but rather we are 
informed clearly about who you are, a holy and just and loving and righteous God who is eternal, who is imminent with his people and yet transcendent over creation, who is the creator, the giver of law, who is the righteous judge. Lord, all of these truths revealed about who you are on the pages of Scripture, and we are grateful for that. Father, help us this week by your Spirit's enabling to to meditate on your word, to hear your voice in Scripture, to see the good that you are teaching us, and to, to abstain from the evil that you are warning us about. Help us by your Spirit's enabling this week to have speech that is filled with your truth, that as we speak to others, that one of the inescapable things they get from us is is a a sense of being saturated in who you are in scripture and so the unruly are lovingly and patiently admonished and the faint-hearted are encouraged and the weak are helped father i pray this week for those in our midst who perhaps find themselves right now in one of those categories may they be responsive to your truth and may they have brothers and sisters who love them enough to come alongside and speak into their lives. Lord, for the one here this morning, any here this morning who are dealing with disorderliness or unruliness and and struggling right now to obey, Lord, may your word and your people provide a kind but real admonishment that would urge them to find the blessing in obedience to you. Those who are filled with questions and discouraged by some circumstance. Help us as a body of believers to to speak words of your truth and your promises and your hope to them. And to those who are weak, help us to see them, to come alongside, to hold them, to not let them be caught in loneliness. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, that today might be the day when your word would bring life and bear fruit. Your word that your son described as seed that is scattered on the ground, we pray that it would, it would find fertile ground, find hearts that embrace the fact that Jesus Christ came and suffered and died for sinners and rose again to defeat sin and death. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Help us in our speaking this week and in our listening to strive to do good to one another, to seek to benefit each other, to live out your will by our praying and our listening. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.